Coffee with Your Therapist podcast is sponsored by MindGuard Mental Health Tracking and Management. We help psychotherapists and their clients by enabling the clients to report on their mental health while waiting to enter therapy. We are particularly focused on young people and university-aged people, and we will be very interested in talking to clinics and services who address this sector. The benefits to the therapist is that when their client enters therapy, you will already have a deep background profile of how the client perceives their own mental health. The benefit for the client is that they will receive encouraging and supportive feedback while they are waiting to start therapy. Please contact Dr. Edel Crean via LinkedIn for more information. Thank you. Then you started that. I was looking at your LinkedIn, and I don't think I've ever seen a longer LinkedIn set of experiences, but each of them very interesting and unique. So um, I'm talking to Dr. Dale Whelan, and uh, you started out as sort of student, active in the student union, and then you were doing physiotherapy at the time. Yeah, I I mean, I moved to Dublin when I was 17 and I went into a career in physiotherapy because I was always taught by my career guidance, you must go into a profession um, that you couldn't go and study, you know. Sure that wasn't your mom and dad said that. It also was my mom and dad. Um, and, you know, I kind of got into physio and I, I did really enjoy science and I really enjoyed understanding particularly physiological responses within the body and how stress manifests itself. But as I kind of went through my undergraduate career and went into clinical placement and had to do a thousand hours of practicing as a physio in different settings, I realized pretty quickly on that this was not a career that best matched my areas of interest. I suppose my own passion probably would have been to go into the likes of law, um, because I've always been particularly interested in understanding human behavior and how do you ultimately change human behavior. Mm -hmm. But physio taught me a lot around how to look at the person in the context of the situation that they are in. And I think I got a really good appreciation of a biopsychological social model in understanding, you know, human behavior and human outcomes which translated me, I suppose, into wanting to go and, and understand that on a more macro level, which ultimately meant going into a PhD program in the behavioral sciences. Yeah, that's a very interesting comment. Um, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to understand someone at that sort of level? But it's um, you're, you're fairly young then, aren't you? You're still fairly young, I have to say, Dale. But anyway, you were, it was quite a mature uh, thought, if you don't mind me saying it that way, you know? Yeah, I'm 27. So I, you're right, my my LinkedIn does look quite extensive, because I put myself under a lot of pressure early on in my 20s to diversify my experience as much as possible. And I think in many instances, it started from being in a profession that didn't, I didn't feel like I was suited to be in longer term. So I needed to figure out pathways on how to to create a new career for myself that was going to match my own areas of interest and 
I didn't make it easy for myself, I suppose, going into a PhD program because people often say about PhD graduates that they don't have any life experience either. So <laughs> I had that foresight, I suppose, and in wanting to enter a workforce uh, being perceived as being up in an ivory tower for the last four years. So I, I tried to get as many kind of internships or experiences working outside of academia as well. And that ultimately, yeah, culminated in me now having worked in the public, private and not-for-profit sector. So it's been, an, it's been an intense few years, but hugely rewarding from a learning perspective as well. No, I'm sure, I'm sure. And um, we were talking there earlier and your main interests would be, say, related, as if I can paraphrase you, sort of related to well-being in the work environment. Well, could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think for me, as a physio, you become very acutely aware of of the people who are not well within our society. So you, you are working in acute hospital settings where people are neurologically or respiratory or whatever it is unwell. And then you go into, you know, I went into uh, Deloitte thereafter working with, you know, a general population and a workforce. And oftentimes I realized that there is actually issues existing in the normal population as well and if we could actually address some of those issues now perhaps we can prevent the longer term you know chronic disease prevalence in in those populations when they grow older and so I think I started to realize that stress is something that we've very much normalized as part of the vernacular of of the work environment but I grew up with a very you know biological understanding that stress to a certain point is all right but but like too much stress is bad for your system and I couldn't understand why the workforce was accepting that level of stress on a on a day-to-day basis so too high level of stress too high level yeah yeah which meant then that I I really wanted to understand the field of well-being because we talk about it so much and we talk about it so much more particularly since the pandemic but when you actually ask people what they mean by it, they can't really describe it. And I often find that it's the conversation is very much at a superficial level with people on saying, I'm looking after myself. I get my eight hours of sleep, but you know, I drink loads of water, I eat three meals a day, but not actually addressing the environment that can actually perpetuate poor well-being within people, which often places in workplaces is issues of toxic leadership and toxic culture. So I suppose when you open Pandora's box, you end up seeing all of these other issues that begin to cause people to feel uh, burnout or stress in their workforces. And I've been on my pursuit now is to try and disentangle some of those um, those issues and identify interventions that might help the workforce in a meaningful way. Okay, that's very good. Um, I'm trying to look. We've all worked for bosses who've been bullies or tendency to be aggressive as a very difficult thing to learn how to manage that as you go through your career and um, my strategy was always one over one was like get to know his or her boss so um it was sort of like a balance shall we say but that was that was a hard learned lesson the you know is this just basically human an issue with any group of humans or can like this a specific work environment with you know HR looking at the work environment, can it be addressed? Can it be ameliorated? Do you, what's your feeling about that? 
I feel like I've gone through many different approaches in in trying to understand issues of toxic leadership over the years. And I think as a behavioral scientist, you know, I try to look at the many different disciplines that might look at issues like this, whether it be neuroscience or psychology or sociology or behavior economics. And I think even, you know, now I've kind of come through on a, a psychotherapy like lens over the last year myself. And I think a lot of toxic leadership and narcissism actually comes from a deep sense of inadequacy within the person themselves and a, and a real, you know, out of touchness with humanity, um, which a culture, particularly of capitalism, rewards uh, that stoic upper, like stiff upper lipism uh, in management structures. So I think in order to break down those kind of issues of narcissism within leadership, it is, it's, it's not, I don't think any one individual can do that as an individual yourself, you know, experiencing this within, within someone else above, above you. I think all you can do is try to minimize your level of engagement with that person as much as possible. The field of research around incivility would suggest, you know, actually killing them with kindness can sometimes be the best way to preserve your own sense yes, of, as opposed to just killing them that's what you're saying yeah killing them with kindness so that at least you can say uh, to uh, yourself there is nothing more i can do in this situation and that's a sense of like, self-acceptance I, I haven't heard that uh, before Dale. that's sort of an interesting strategy you need a lot of patience wouldn't you you would need a lot of patience and i think that's why this field i, I love psychology because all of these different researchers and are looking at these issues like civility and work and what we think might work versus what the evidence would suggest might work best you know we often are often incongruent with one another so killing with kindness seems to be the best intervention albeit an extremely hard one to do and it has to come to a certain point where you have to decide whether you want to remain under the influence of that person yourself i think it's an unfortunate situation that it can lead to resignation of a staff member but that's what we see. We see an empowerment of the individual to say, I can no longer operate in this sort of setting. What the research would suggest is that when you actually, you know, confront a narcissist within the workplace or you attempt to call them out, if you're the person in, you know, who's subservient, you are more likely to face the punishment um, as a result of those actions. So there's, yes, there's calling out injustices, but also there's self-preservation and, I think as an individual, you need to look at keeping yourself protected as much as possible throughout your career and sustaining yourself throughout your own career and helping out others while you can, but also being realistic. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a balance, isn't it? It's sort of Sometimes you can do something, sometimes you can't, and um, recognizing when you can't and probably, I don't know, move on. Well, I move on. In a larger company, you could probably move departments or something like that. The um yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and you're currently the CEO of an interesting organization, which I think we can all support, maybe. But I I, I am being uh, somewhat flipping there, but I, I think it's a there's a good and um solid reason why this this is a good idea. Maybe tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I work for an organization called Four Day Week Global, which is a not-for-profit organization that uh, advocates for reduced working hours in companies and at a national level across the globe 
So we do a few different activities. One, the main activity of which we have been known for is conducting pilot studies in different jurisdictions and publishing research in conjunction with academic partners on whether a four-day week is good for people, for businesses, and for society. And a lot of it, all of the data today would would point towards when you reduce a working the working hours of uh, of an organization people will experience an improvement in their level of of subjective well-being coupled with a reduction in levels of stress which will feed into an increase in reported productivity of the staff by management and will also feed into an improvement in business performance as well i think at the very foundation scientific level as to why that is happening is because you are moving away from using time as this arbitrary metric of productivity, which is currently used as a scapegoat, to actually trying to be much more deliberate um, in your organizations to understand, well, what are the key activities that drive business performance for us? Mm-hmm. And let's actually redesign our week around realizing those activities, but then also realizing that humans are not machines and actually have a finite amount of attention and cognitive capacity. So leveraging that physiological and psychological understanding of human performance to bring people to the level of stress of peak performance, but not tip them over to the level of stress into burnout. And in many ways, I think what a four day week doing is doing is just tipping the balances back on a world of work that has become very unsustainable over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, particularly as the the knowledge industry has grown over the last few years. Hmm. Because they're on twenty four seven, you know, with the devices. I mean, that's very interesting. So, is is um, four day week like? Is it research and advocacy? Um, is what's the main functions of the organization? So, we are our social impact mission is to create a million new years of free time, and we achieve that through a series of different activities. The first is we are an education body, so we have a foundation course for for individuals and organizations interested in understanding how do you actually transition to a four-day week. The second then is a pilot program supported by our SMEs to guide organizations through an actual six-month process of change. A last one then being consulting, which is obviously a larger, more bespoke advisory service for um, bigger organizations and maybe more complex organizations to introduce, reduce working time. So we do all of that we conduct academic independent research on the pilot studies and the consulting, and we then publish those findings um, into, into media. Hmm. I mean, if one thing came out of COVID, it's clearly the move away from the office and reducing commute. And I don't think there's most, uh, what you might call co- modern companies today would offer some sort of hybrid working at the very least, which would not have been standard pre-COVID. So you're probably very much on the cusp of where the thinking is. Yeah, and at the very core, it is about working smarter, not longer. So the idea of the nine to five Monday to Friday is not based on any evidence. So it was introduced back in the early 1900s in what was called Taylorism or scientific management, uh, which was the formation of the discipline of management. But it was largely done in an industrial revolution style of work, which was very physical, repetitive, laborious, and actually was introduced in order to mitigate error making on the service line. 
work has changed drastically from that and we are no longer for seven or eight hours using our our physical muscles to complete work instead using our our memory muscle and our you know cognitive mm-hmm. muscle. and we haven't as as a species evolved at a quick enough rate for the brain to be able to be exercised for that amount of hours in a given day so i think that's why we have seen this mismatch now in expectations of workload output versus what humans are actually capable of doing and it's actually the opportunity exists in allowing people to rest more Mm. because all of the evidence in high performance industries shows the power of psychology in enhancing performance and always talk about rest and recovery in order to reach higher levels of performance so we're simply trying to apply those principles in the world of work Mm, very interesting really interesting very advanced thinking too and um yeah, and no, as I say, you're probably right in the sweet spot. I'm sure uh, loads of HR people will be interested in this. The, a lot of the audience here are, are uh, psychotherapists, so I'm sure they're seeing the results of this, the way we currently work every day. So I think they'll find this really interesting. Now. Um, where can people contact you? LinkedIn uh, would be one way, I guess. Yeah, LinkedIn and, and 4Day Week Global, our website, so 4dayweek.com is where they can find us. Um, I think it's interesting if, if a lot of your your listeners are psychotherapists because the, the focus, I suppose, so much in the world of work on mental health and well-being is on the individual. And I think what we're trying to do is, is tip some of that responsibility back onto the organization. We see the growing, I suppose, emphasis on mental health and well-being in organizations and investment in interventions to try and improve you know the well-being of their workforce or reduce the level of burnouts but we're not seeing the dial move on that to any degree and i think that's because organizations are doing a form of window of shopping wellness i.e producing what they think is going to improve the well-being of their workforce as opposed to doing an honest self-reflection on what is causing people to feel unwell in the first place. And we know that those issues, those organizational issues, lie at the heart of poor culture and poor leadership. And what a four-day week does is says these things can't coexist any longer because we are moving towards outcome-based work in a reduced working hour schedule. So with that equation in mind, high performance is the only, you know, type of culture that can exist okay very interesting so you i happen to know uh, ran the marathon there last weekend congratulations on you who runs a marathon is star in my uh, eyes so what do you do for relaxation yourself yeah so running would be my main activity and it has been a it's it's funny i mean sometimes it is a recovery activity for me and sometimes it stresses me out even further um, and I think I've become anyone who does a solitary activity like that realizes that you have to really train yourself to, in order to realize the benefit of it. And sometimes that just doesn't pay off. And for Dublin City Marathon this year, it was very much uh, it was very much proving something to myself um, that I could go out and be out on you know the course for that long and enjoy the process. Because last year I did it and I had the total opposite effect. Um, and so I've, I've 
as as a, as a kind of you know in the, in my career but also in my own personal life i've realized that so much of the growth and professional growth actually comes through personal growth and my level of perfectionism as an individual was something that has caused me a lot of issues over the years it's caused a lot of anxiety a lot of depression and in the case of both in the case of work but also in the case of the marathon last year where i failed to achieve the expectations that I had placed on myself. So was this was that time or just not completing? Yeah, no, I completed it, but I, yeah, no, I didn't get a time that I wanted. And I um basically hit a wall about 5k into the marathon and then that's early. Pretty early. I, I've run marathons, that's why I'm Mr. Expert on this all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> well it's been a while, Dale, to be honest. But I did I did hit the wall one time and I was never shocked at how physically um overwhelming it was really overwhelming and you know i remember several times throughout that race then feeling like i was losing you know the battle against myself and while i did complete it last year uh, and dragged myself over the line instead of a feeling that sense of accomplishment for overcoming so many challenges i felt utter despair and um resentment towards myself and that quite scared me because I had placed so much pressure on myself and saying that all of my anxiety was going to be gone the minute I finished that marathon. And it became quite, I became quite aware of the fact, you know, that in the days after that that wasn't the case. And in fact, my, my mental health rapidly deteriorated uh, after doing the marathon last year. So this year was about showing it, it, was, it could be an enjoyable experience. I won't say pleasurable, but an enjoyable experience. Yeah. And, you know, I did have that anxiety and I went up again to the marathon this time. And I I kind of kept on saying to myself, you're in a battle. You're, you're racing against your mind in this race. You're not racing against anyone else or racing against any time because I am my own worst enemy, but I am also my, my own best friend. And I think, yeah. thankfully, on that day, you know, I I was my own best friend and I had a lot of compassion for myself throughout the race and mm-hmm. all of the positive mantras just seemed to work well for me. And even though I finished slower this year than last year, I had like a million times of a better experience. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been huge. I feel like as a runner, I matured a lot yeah, this year. Absolutely. Sounds like it. Are, are you... Uh... Is there anything that you do just to switch off and relax and music, for example? I'm not sure. Is that a significant thing? Yeah, I probably listen to about two or three hours of music a day. I got into this really weird habit over the years when when I was doing my PhD, it was a very, again, solitary activity. And I was in the habit of getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning and and writing um, until about 9 a.m. And then my day was done. So I had the entire day to myself. <laughs> um, so I've had to learn to be very comfortable with periods of, of you know, isolation because uh, my fiance, she only starts work at nine. So I don't see her then until six or seven. Um, so I got into taking myself a little bit ser- less seriously because I'm a very serious person. It's just built into me. And one of the things I do would be listening to music and like pretending I was someone else and like, you know, dancing around the place and just, it sounds so silly, but I kind of learned how to play a little bit. Mm, that's and, the word I was just going to use. It's yeah. like you're in a 
you're in a part of your mind that you're free to do, think, whatever, you know, so. Uh, and that, and that part of my mind is quite, is quite weak, you know. Uh, it, it's not easy to access that part of Dale. No, um, no, no, no. So I had to train myself. And I think what? that kind of opened up a more general conversation for me around how growing up, you know, it was never you were never allowed to be a version like that of yourself. And, you know, I grew up in, in the Midlands, you know, in GA culture where there was a very much a prototype of what masculinity looked like. And I didn't fit that, but I tried so hard to, and, you know, it's only now that I'm starting to realize that the difference me standing out actually is, is something beneficial to me longer term um as opposed to you know being part of the status quo sure no no i got you i mean there's different types of masculinity now that i think we're the better for it so in general what sort of music do you like there what would you listen to i'm like one of those people who listens to everything but i also have an awful taste in music so like <laughs> <laughs> like i could be listening to i don't know 90s pop and then i'm listening to like 80s rock and then like Bach or like Chopin like I don't know it all depends on what mood I'm in um and one thing I've really got into is when I start feeling stress building up inside me and I'm like oh god I haven't cried in a while so I'll start playing really sad music and like making myself cry so yeah I use music for for many different purposes right and on this podcast you get to nominate the play out song which actually a lot of people find very difficult to pick one song I hope you've got something in mind. Nominate play song. Yes, you have to nominate the play out song. Oh dear. Um, okay. Well, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to scroll through. Okay. What's a, not a very embarrassing song to be listening to? <laughs> um, do you know who I actually really like? Um, and I've already started getting into her music now, even though she is an idol. Is um both sides now by Johnny March I think it's such a lovely song and mm-hmm. I've really started listening to it in different versions of it and how it's been sung in many different ways um I think it what it touches on is a is a just a deeper sense of like reflecting on life and how life can be not just this or that but also this and that no it's a great song so it's coming along now look Dale thanks very much for being open honest and really an interesting guest and uh all the best with your future marathons. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you for having me on. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere Looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and they snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds guard in my way I've looked at clouds from both sides now From up and down And still somehow 
its cloud illusions I recall I really don't know clouds at all moons and Jews and fairies wheels The dizzy dancing way that you feel as every fairy tale comes through I've looked at love that way but now it's just another show and you leave them laughing when you go And if you can don't let them know don't give yourself away I've looked at love from both sides now from a given tree still somehow it's love's illusions that I recall I really don't know love I really don't know love at all Circus crowns I've looked at life that way Oh, but now, old friends They're acting strange And they shake their heads And they tell me that I've changed Well, something's lost But something's gained In living Every day I look at life from both sides now From win and lose And still somehow it's life's illusions I recall I really don't know life It's life's illusions that I recall I really don't know life I really don't know life at all. 